Hi, I'm Travis Gilbert, and you're listening to episode one of Into the Rabbit Hole. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Oliver Berkman, who recently wrote what has become one of my favorite books, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. To sum it up, we are all going to die relatively soon. And in that time, we're going to have to do the things that matter to us. But how are we to do them effectively? And how are we to stop wasting time on things that really don't matter? So, without further ado, our first guest is Oliver Berkman. Oliver, you have given multiple TED Talks on productivity, overwhelm, and just how short our lives are. You write the anti-self-help self-help column, This Column Will Change Your Life, at The Guardian, and most recently, you are the New York Times bestseller of what has quickly become one of my favorite books, 4,000 Weeks. It is also partially what inspired me to make this podcast. So thank you for that. And also thank you for being here. Thank you. It's uh, been quite a surprise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's very well deserved. Uh, and thank you for being my first podcast guest. Uh, it's an honor. It's an honor. <laughs> uh, before we get into the actual content of the book, I want to say I read lots of, I read lots of nonfiction books every year. Uh, in your book, in particular, like when I read most of these books, uh, some of them have good ideas in them, but most of them are the writing is kind of lacking, but the content's okay. When I read your book in particular, I really liked the way that it was written. Uh, I know you've been a writer at The Guardian and you've written for The New York Times before this, and you have two other books. I was wondering if you could elaborate on what it is that made you a writer. Wow. Yeah, I guess it's always really hard to say in your own case, right? Because you're sort of inside your own head. I do know that since I was annoyingly small, I've wanted to be a journalist. Like I think when I was at um, uh, what you guys would call middle school, certainly I was like making my classmates accept like Xeroxed, uh, like so-called newspapers that I'd made yeah. on like whatever the closest thing I had to a you know word processor back when I was there. Uh, back in the 80s. Um, I don't know if they read anything that I wrote, but I was certainly writing it. Um, uh, so I sort of wanted to be a journalist right from right from before I could, could remember. Um, and I've definitely always been someone who's a, you know, a words person instead of a numbers person or a, or a physics and right. chemistry person or something. Um, I think I the thing that I've always found really enjoyable, and it, I'm flattered if it sounds like it's working to you in this book, is like coming to grips with kind of big, unwieldy ideas and, and communicating them in ways that are not simple. Like I'm not, I don't think I'm writing down to like as if people are reading me are less intelligent than me, but like writing it in a, in a way that is more sort of concise and resonates quickly. So, I don't think the readers of this book are going to be less intelligent than me, but they probably have got less time to be thinking about these ideas than I have. Right. So, um, it's that idea of just sort of turning these things into nuggets of, of wisdom that people can sort of use in their lives. I don't know. I've always enjoyed that because, you know, not to sound false modest, not, the ideas in this book are not like, it's not like nobody ever thought them. They go back to like ancient Greece and ancient Rome in many cases. Um, but, but sort of making them digestible and relevant to like where we're at now in, in the culture and in the development of history or whatever. Um, that's always been a thing I've, I've loved doing 
in writing. By contrast, I'm not sure I could write a short story or a novel, uh, like if my life depended on it. That's yeah. just like a, another thing, another kind of thing. Yeah. Those are two different beasts. Uh, as you were saying with uh, making things more digestible, you have this point in your book. Uh, it's one of the points that show up in a lot of time management books that, that you handled very differently, which is there's this instructor or this teacher and he's got like sand and rocks on his oh, desk. Oh, that story. Yeah. 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 And like most in most books, they handle this by telling you that you should put the rocks into the jar first, then you put in the sand and then you put in the water and then you do it that way everything fits into the jar. Because if you put the sand in or you put the little things in your life in first, then you don't have any room for all of the big things. Uh, and that's usually where people leave that point alone at. Right. Yours goes further in that you say you should put the big rocks in and then don't put the sand in. You know, make time for the important things. And like that is like, that is all you have time for, you know spending too much time like it's important what you say no to um yeah i think i think what i would say i mean i think you're very right what i would say put a little differently what i want to say is like the problem with that story that i'm sure you know lots of people are familiar with it's like it's just rigged right because the instructor only brought as many rocks as he knew would fit into the <laughs> the jar i think the right the i mean obviously it's fictional i'm sure but like you know i think the the really one another way of saying maybe what you're what you're getting at there is like there are just too many big rocks in our lives today it's not that it's not that if you're really clever and you use the right optimization and you have the right apps running on your apple watch you know that then you can fit in everything that matters and none of the stuff that doesn't matter it's like there isn't even time for everything that matters or that feels like it matters and that's okay right that just means like we live in this world of so many opportunities, so many obligations, so much information, so many people you could date, so many like aspects of your business that you could launch. It's, it's all it's just like it's all just kind of infinite. So it's inevitable that like tons of things that it would be useful to and, and valuable to spend your time on, you're not gonna have a chance to spend your time on. Um, and that you have to sort of accept that on some level if you are going to dedicate yourself, your time and your energy and your attention to a few things and people that, that really matter, you sort of got to admit defeat at the beginning in order to do cool stuff rather than uh, be constantly chasing this like hypothetical state where you're managing to do it all, which we all feel like we're maybe going to get around to next month or next year, but it never actually happens. Right, right. That's so true. Uh, one of the ways that you bring this up is like through the issue of like commitment, which is uh, how a lot of people strive to have like absolute like sovereignty over their time. So they only have to make the commitments that say they specifically want to make or just like general commitment issues. Um, and I was wondering, have you had you, you do bring this up a little bit in the book, but I was wondering, have you had commitment issues like that? in the past or currently that you've overcome? Oh, totally. I mean, the, I think the thing you always have to remember with books in this kind of genre of like advice or wisdom or whatever you want to call them, like they are always things that the author of that book has like had a struggle with and whether or not the author admits it. So I think I've made a lot of progress in my own life personally, but I'm definitely like a lot of the stuff I'm talking about here is stuff that I've totally kind of 
grappled with. And yeah, I think in my sort of younger adulthood, I think I've, it's mainly in the past now, but yeah, I was definitely that kind of person who both in terms of jobs and where I lived and, uh, and in dating relationships to some extent, you know, I was very invested in this sense of like keeping my options open and not, and not committing in a way that would be irreversible or difficult to reverse. Um, and really what I write about in the book is that, you know, in, in this, in that section is just that like, they've shown this in psychology research as well as it's not just me saying it, but like, I think it's true to a lot of people's experience. You think that is a good way to be because you feel in control. It's like, I'm not totally committed to anything. I can change my mind at any time I like, but actually people are much, much happier when they deliberately or accidentally put themselves into situations where they can't back out, um, where they've made, they've like, they've made their bed and they've just got to kind of, go forward uh with it so you know i think some of that is kind of some of that you probably do have to get to be like a a bit older than like you are and more like i am to, to sort of to sort of you maybe have to go through that first phase i don't think you can necessarily like avoid learning these lessons for yourself as a person right. but like in general if you can if you're ever in a position where you can sort of where you're sort of on the verge of taking the plunge with something. I think, you know, once you've taken it, it's really freeing because it's like, you're no longer tormented by like, Oh, should I go, should I change that? Should I do that differently? It's, um, there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. yeah it's the, uh, it's the paradox of choice. Right. I think, I think as you put it, if you do everything to leave your options open, you end up with just the options in the end. Right. I, somebody said that. I don't know if it was me who said that, but that's a really, really um, nice way of putting it. So I don't know if it was me, I'm, I'm very happy. But uh, no, I mean, yeah, right. You, you sort of, what's that all for in the long run, right? I mean, maybe there's isolated little phases in a life where it is useful to keep your options open, but like as a project for your whole life, getting to your deathbed and being like, well, I kept my options open. That's, <laughs> that's right. Sucks, right? There's no, there's no, that's, that wasn't a life well lived. Right, exactly, exactly. You say in your book, you call yourself an ex-productivity junkie. I really like productivity myself. Every like productivity junkie has like the set of things that like they do, like their their set of hacks, yeah. if you will. Um, and I was wondering, after having gone through writing this book and all of that, do you still have like your set of time management hacks that you rely on? Yeah, no, I, I totally do. It's not, I, sometimes people think that this book is like someone who's just like thrown away all attempts to manage their time and just walked away. That's not me at all. But two things, like firstly, it's to do with the spirit in which you implement them. So I used to implement all these systems with this, maybe unconscious, but with this idea that I was getting, I was on my way to this position of like perfect productivity and optimization. And then I'd be in control and it would all be great from then on. I've sort of, that's what I've let go of. Um, that doesn't mean that a, a productivity technique can't still be useful. And then secondly, the, the specific techniques that I come back to, I think are much more in keeping with this idea of facing the fact that time is limited and that you can only choose a few things. So one of the one of the things that I, that I do a lot now is, well, firstly, like I think 
time boxing type approaches to measure, to organizing the day are really useful here because they right. really make you see like, Oh, I've only got this many hours. So right. you know, then I'm going to decide what to put in them. I'm not going to do this thing where I draw up a list of 50 things that I think I'm going to get through by the end of the day. It's like yeah. hopelessly unrealistic because I haven't assigned a time to them. And then the other thing is this idea of limiting your work in progress. You sound like as much of a productivity geek as me. So you probably know about like Kanban and all these yep. different, um, the, the, there are other ways of implementing this, but anyway, the point, the sort of core point in the, in all these ideas is the same, which is like, you're just going to have two or three things that you're working on at any one moment. You're going to make all the other things you want to do, like wait until one of those is actually progressed. Um, right. so it, it, it makes you feel a bit anxious because it's kind of, it's more comfortable to feel like you're taking care of business. You've got fingers in a hundred pies, whatever, but it's actually much more effective to tolerate that anxiety and just stick with something, maybe two or three things. Maybe one is asking too much, but certainly not like 20 things and see it through to completion before you, before you move, uh, onto something else. So it's that kind of technique. I think I, I yeah, I really do still use a lot of those and I'm as you know I'm always still totally seduced by some new app or you know fancy hardback planner or something but it's just it's just not using them in this project of like one day I'm going to be so in control that nothing's going to be scary in life and I'm never going to have to say no to anybody or disappoint anybody it's just like that is out the window that is such a good point especially on the on the feeling the anxiety and like learning to grapple with that point hey so to take a little bit of a break the idea of time boxing comes up naturally in the conversation of this episode however this was already sponsored by my time boxing app of choice sunsama sunsama is the best way i know of to visualize the fact that a day has 24 hours you're awake for 16 of them and you cannot fit an unlimited amount of task in a 16 hour period in fact sunsama will literally not let you schedule yourself in a way that is likely to make you burn out they will however give you advice on the ideal way to structure your day and if you've used previous sponsor ClickUp or some other project management software you can integrate them together because most softwares work better when integrated together use my link in the description to start your free trial with sunsuma or if you're one of the people who type the link in manually shame on you but if you insist on doing that go to sunsuma.com curious dash tangents Sun Sama, abandon the comfort of multitasking except that you are going to die someday and can only do a limited amount of things before then, and plan out the most important ones with Sun Sama. That is not their tagline, but click the link in my description and get back to the podcast. In a previous book of yours, it's called uh, The Antidote and the subtitle is Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Yeah. In that book, you go over how things oftentimes feel unbearable because we want them to feel differently than they are. You know, we right. wait until we feel motivated to actually get to do the work, or uh, we wait until the work is going to feel easier at some way off point. And so, because we're doing this, because we're like waiting to be someone who's going to actually be good at this work, uh, we never actually get to doing the thing. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's suffering be it's unbearable because you want it to be different. Um, right. 
And I just, I don't know, I just thought that point was very. I, I mean, I just have found this. I'm glad you bring it up because I've just sort of found this myself in life so many times. Right? There are the problems that you have, and we all have them. And obviously, some problems that some people have sometimes are truly awful. I'm not trying to minimize that. But there's the problems, and then there's like having a problem with the fact that you have problems. If you see what I mean, right? So like it imagining that like someday in the future you're not gonna have any problems uh it's a very weird weird thought really because like i don't think that is ever going to arrive for any of us and so you know if something's going wrong in your life there's the there's the fact that it's going wrong and then there's that kind of this shouldn't be happening idea which is just like an extra layer uh and that you can sort of let go of i think and then just address yourself to the actual thing that you're trying to deal with. Yeah. That is so true. I, I remember personally, like, like there was a point where like my house burned down and I would always think of like, uh, things will just be easier when I have another house or like when I'm like, like I have like stability and like, that was absolutely true, but things were never like that. They were never like the idealized version of things that I like always wanted them to be and I think like it's so easy right. to always get caught up in the idea that like the future will be infinitely better than whatever moment that you're currently in and a lot of people get like very hung up on that idea of this moment doesn't mean anything because I have this moment in the future that I'm looking into or like you know there's just always that next thing that's going to make the situation better or always right. that next thing that's going to matter more Right. Uh, and I mean, and if you're talking about your house burning down literally as opposed to a metaphor, that, that's awful. And like, no one should be saying that isn't absolutely terrible. But at the same time, and I sympathize, but at the same time, um, right, you can make any situation like that worse by by fixating on an ideal alternative as opposed to an incrementally better alternative. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. You talked a lot about this thing that you call the busyness problem, where people yeah. feel like everything that they have to do is happening all at one time. Uh, I would say I feel that way a lot, and so do most of the people that I know. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you have, like, what advice would you say for dealing with that constant nagging feeling of all of these things have to be done yeah. right this second. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm not completely free of it myself, but I think that, um, I mean, the kind of busyness that I'm writing about in the, in the book, it, it's, it's interesting to me because just being busy in some sense is actually kind of not a bad thing. You know, um, sometimes you have sort of elderly relatives and you ask them how they're doing and they're like, oh, I'm keeping busy. It's like, it's a good thing, right? They've got, they yeah. got stuff going on in their lives. Um, and I write in the book about, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Richard Scarry kids books that, um, from set in busy town. This is these 1970s, 1980s children's books. But the point is it's all these little animals who are in place of the people in a town. And they're all like firefighters who are, I think the firefighters are pigs and the grocery right. guys run grocery is a cat and like they've all, they're all animals, but they're all busy. And the, the point about these books is they're all busy, but they're kind of happy busy. And the reason yeah. they're happy busy is because they have a lot to do, but they have enough time to do that stuff. So they just do their stuff. And what we're really talking about and what you're talking about is something different, right? It's like overwhelm. It's the feeling that 
there's more that you have to do today than you think you can do today, which is a really, really bad and kind of also quite a weird idea because how, how can it be that you have to do something that you can't do? Like that just in philosoph in philosophical terms, it just doesn't really, um, make any sense. So yeah, I think the, the, there are tips and techniques and we can talk about that, but the, but the main thing I think that I'm getting at in the book is just to start by seeing the absurdity of the situation, right? I mean, if you feel like 10 things all have to be done right now, but you know that 10 things can't all be done right now, then maybe you can like stop beating yourself up for not being able to do this thing, which would be literally impossible, which is to do them all simultaneously right now. Right. And, and as we were talking about, you know, pick one of them, uh, tolerate the anxiety relating to all the ones you're not doing and just do one and do another. And, you know, some of them will be late, but they were always going to be right. Once you were in that situation. So, um, I think a lot of what I write about is sort of encouraging people to stop beating themselves up for not being able to do things that are just conceptually impossible. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't beat ourselves yeah. up for not being able to like jump a mile in the air because human beings can't do that. And nobody expects it of human beings. Right. So we could maybe go easy on ourselves about um, not being able to like answer 50 emails in 10 minutes like can't be done and maybe you know and it's obviously there's a big sort of social and political and economic factor here right people feel like they have to do that just to keep their jobs or just to keep a roof over their heads right um and so we need to take that seriously but it's still impossible so like it's still impossible uh and um so the the sort of layer of self uh reproach i guess that we add on to that we could really let go of because um it's just like trying to make two plus two add up to five, you know, it's not right. Hard. Exactly. You can't do more than you can do. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's uh. it's so funny that you bring up this place called busy town. Cause I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, there was this TV show. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It was called lazy town. And I oh, rings a bell, but no, anyway, you go on. Yeah. I feel like every person my age has probably seen it. It was on all the time. But basically, it's this very strange show where there's like some real people, some real actors, and there's like some people are puppets. And there's like this girl and like uh, the girl is like very hyperactive and she has this villain. And this villain is basically the embodiment of laziness. His name was like Lazy Larry. And his goal was to get people to like stop doing things and to just like leisurely lays around all day <laughs> and it's it's just so funny to think about that uh like when you put that up against like the point that you're making in your book where it's like like for a really long time the goal of acquiring money was to like have leisure right whereas today even people who are wealthy tend to be busier than really busy yeah. Be. yeah 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 it's like even it's like positively correlated right like right, the right. Uh, the wealthier you are, the more you are worried about not having time to get everything done. Uh, and it's just so interesting that that was the kids show. That Wait, made- I, had, I don't know if it was done ironically, but it sounds like kind of American propaganda to get children to be really hard, <laughs> hard really workers. In, right? Yeah, right. 
<laughs> I had that exact same thought and I didn't right. have that same I didn't have that thought until I read your book and I was like, man, I wonder it like gave me a weird flashback to Lazy Town and I was like, that feels really weird now. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Oh God. Um one of the like immediate behavior changes that I made when I was when I was like reading your book was that you had this idea where it's like if you feel generous, you shouldn't wait for a future moment to act on that. You should just do something generous. You know, if you want to compliment someone, don't wait for some time in the future. Just go out and give that person that compliment. So in my own life, like work as a YouTuber, like lots of ideas that I'll like never actually get to. And then I'll say that I'll get to them sometime later when I'm like a different person with like more time and resources or something. Right. Uh, since reading that, I've started to actually get to work on my ideas basically immediately. And it's really improved my productivity. And I wanted to ask, is there a certain part of the book that you were writing and you were like, I really hope that this affects change for the person reading it? Or like one part of the book where you're just like, I really want this part to to click for the person reading? Huh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess I sort of hope that for all sorts of parts of the book. Right. Um, and this sort of, the the thing that I'm trying to get at is that all of these kind of specific techniques, like you're referring to the instant generosity thing, which comes from Joseph Goldstein, the meditation teacher who says, and I don't claim to be really good at this, by the way, I, I, I find it really appealing, but I, but I think it's, it comes from him first and foremost, this idea of acting instantaneously. Again, it's it's all about this contrast. It's it's all about giving up this idea of that there's going to be some perfect future you who's going to do all these things really well, and you should wait until that future you has been brought into being. And it's the same for the future you who is totally on top of email and the future you right. who, ne- who is has a perfectly organized day. And in this case, it's just like the future you who is like the kind of person who makes donations to charity or sends complimentary emails to people whose work they like or something like that. It's like, I was stuck in that for ages and probably to some extent still am, but just that idea that like, these were really good things to do. So I better turn myself into the kind of person who does them. It's like, no, these are really good things to do. So just do them. And, and it, and it's, and it, and it definitely is sort of anxiety triggering. And I've, and I find that myself now, like I'm sort of transitioning from being a, a staff journalist through writing this book to sort of the new world of email lists and, and, uh, and, and figuring out what comes next in my own writing, uh, life. And yeah, you could, I could, I can even feel it today. I could spend like another five years trying to get everything perfectly lined up. It's like, it doesn't work like that. And, and as I'm sure you're discovering, you talk about, you know, just sort of launching ideas that you have apart from anything else you get instant feedback about how to make it better or whether that was such a good idea. And, you know, it's, um, I think this is maybe a point specific to media and writing and content creation and, and the digital world. But like one of the great things is that like the, the downsides are very low of making those kind of, um, those kind of, attempts at things right because if you put something out there's basically two options like it does really well or it vanishes without trace there isn't an option where 
you're really humiliated and everybody laughs at you and mocks you for being bad at what you do, right? I mean, occasionally when people do sort of outrageous things, that happens. But broadly, it's either going to be a success or it's going to be like it never happened. And that's great because it just means that you can try stuff and throw stuff at the wall and see what see what works. Um, so I noticed this on Twitter, for example, where I'm like probably spent too much of my life. Um, you can, yeah, like you can just try stuff out because if nobody is interested, that's fine. Move on, you know. Uh, whereas I think when you're writing for a newspaper, sort of old style journalism stuff, it's actually kind of not quite like that. Like if you write, yeah. You know, you write bad columns week after week, you're probably going to lose your job and that's going to be a real big disruption in your life and blah, blah, blah. But but something about the sort of one-to-many structure of doing things online means that, I mean, again, we're talking about specifically here, but like, yeah, go for it because there's not a lot to lose apart from the sort of upfront time investment. That is, that's such a good way to think about that with, you know, people will either like really like it or it'll fade into the background because that's so true. I should know that because I've done it so many times. <laughs> but in my head, it's always that third option where it goes terribly wrong and people ridicule right. you. <laughs> but that's because we're all, you know, we're all not, you know, we're all, we all see the world from inside our own heads. And it's very hard to sort of realize that you're not, I'm not saying you're an egomaniac all the time, an egomaniac, but just that like, it's very hard to think about truly how little people mind what you're doing that like care what you're doing right if you do something cool that improves their lives or helps them or entertains them that's wonderful and if it doesn't they'll just be getting on with their day you know exactly yep (laughs) so true one of the points that you make in uh early on in the book is about how in medieval times people would have had they would have experienced time in a much different way than we do today Today, we have like compartmentalized time, like we experience time almost like it's math, or it's like this amount of segments of the day are going by at this time. Whereas if you were, say, a medieval peasant, you would experience time as like seasons, the sun rising and sun setting, or the um, like, the cows have to be milked today and stuff like that. Right. I was wondering, do you think that there's like a, like deeper implications for the way that people like live their lives in the segmented way that we do? How do I put this? (laughs) Potentially like bad for your health or like the, like we should be adapting to this a different way. Tell me if this is not exactly what you're asking. This is kind of weird abstract deep stuff and you know it's, it's difficult to put words on but i think that you know the idea that i explore is that medieval peasants for example and lots of other people at other times in history and maybe some indigenous cultures even today you know would have would experience time uh yeah not in this objectified way where where you're sort of you're sort of lining up your day against like a timeline or a clock or a calendar in your head, but just what anthropologists call task orientation, right? So the, the rhythms of life just emerge from the de- from the tasks that you have to do. And you're not sort of thinking of time as a resource that you use. It's just sort of the medium in which life unfolds. And yeah, if you go up to a dairy farmer, even today, but certainly like a medieval dairy farmer and say like, why don't you do all the milking of the cows for the month today? to get it out of the way because you're supposed to batch your tasks because I read that in a productivity book, right? I mean, that's crazy because that's not how the rhythms of the natural world uh, function. And I'm certainly not arguing in the book that we should go back to being 
the lifestyle of medieval peasants because that was really awful right. in, in most ways. But I do think there's some benefit in just in seeing that the way we mainly relate to time isn't the only conceivable way to relate to time. Just in sort of unseating it a little bit and showing that it's kind of historically contingent. And, you know, I think most of us do have experiences of that other kind of time, that kind of just being fully absorbed in what is happening and not thinking about like what else is on the to-do list and whether you're going to add this block and this block and they're all going to make enough, you're going to get enough done. Uh, I certainly found that in the first few months after our son was born, right? Ba newborn babies are on this rhythm. It's like, they don't care what schedule you've got. Yeah. So you just have to sort of be with time as it unfolds. And there are lots of other contexts. It's not just about parenthood. And I think it's really useful to remember that because I think that part of the problem uh, comes from thinking that this is the only way to relate to time as a resource to be maximized and then constantly feeling sort of like you're losing and you're on the back foot and you haven't quite measured up to how you wanted today to go. It's really useful to remember that all that is kind of a choice on some level and that at least sometimes you can put that aside and just sort of be in life if only for a short period at the end of the day or drinking your morning coffee or something like that. That is that's so interesting and so true. I think a lot about I give this argument in the book that like no matter what it is that you're doing there you are living in the present, you know? Like if you are planning for the future you are doing that in the present because right. we have like this romanticization of like getting to a point where you live in the present when in reality, no matter what you're doing, you are living in the present. And that never really clicked until I read it the way that you wrote it. Yeah, I, I thought that that was really good. It's like, I mean, basically in this book, I realized that a lot of the arguments I'm making about not living in the future sort of sum up to this point of like, no, you should live in the present. And then I had to address the fact that like, trying to be present in the moment is really hard too. And whenever I've tried it, it sort of goes wrong because you're sitting there thinking like, oh, am I present in the moment enough? And then you're not present in the moment because you're yeah. having that thought. And yeah, I think it really is much more useful as you, as you point to, just to sort of see that you can't not be present in the moment. You can be present in the moment thinking anxiously about the future. But even once you see that, once you see that that is unfolding in the present, there's a little bit of relaxing, a little bit of unclenching, right? Because you're just like, you can't actually exert control over the future by means of compulsive planning. Um, worrying an extra bit about what you're going to do tomorrow or what's coming up in a month is not actually going to make it be okay like the act of worry feels like we're sort of doing something you know to, yeah. to make things be okay and it's not true so once you sort of see that a little bit you know you might still worry and feel anxious about things in the future of course but it's like some of the charge some of the sort of radioactive charge has gone out of that because um it's just like every single person like the president of the united states is only right here now and cannot know what's coming tomorrow so it's like if there's right it's it's useful to remember i think to, it's just to sort of come back down to earth and you know you might as well relax a bit i suppose is the idea there totally agree one of the ideas that you put forth in the book that i found really challenging but like challenging in a good way uh was again like this idea that the moment itself is valuable uh right. i've always like i think my whole life 
go to plan tomorrow, I'm planning tomorrow to make the day after that potentially a little bit easier. Right. I never think about the moment as it is the moment. You bring up this study where it's like people are always talking about how whether or not video games can be damaging to children in the long term, or maybe they're beneficial to children in the long term, but no one ever asks, is playing video games a valuable way for the child to spend the time now? Because childhood is something that children go through for adulthood, or at least that's the way that it's been like, like handed down to us. Having recently become a father, congratulations, by the way, do you have uh, planned on not having your child's childhood be for adulthood? I mean, that's that's a really good question. And I mean, yeah, what you're referring to this part of the book where I'm writing about, really writing about various other writers who have pointed out that like, it's weird to treat childhood exclusively as preparation for adulthood, because like, childhood is childhood doesn't mean you can ignore it right so my son is i mean this book took so long to write that the newborn baby i write about at one point in the book is now almost five years old but um you know he's learning to write some letter shapes at the moment and um like that's important preparation for the future of course you know we need to we need to be educated and do all this stuff but you don't want to i think if you just place all the value in the future that's a real problem because like, when do you stop? Like you don't then get to be 30 and or 40 or 50 and then say, okay, now is the time that life is for. Um, And even if you did, that would be a bit of a waste of all the, of all the previous years. So when it comes to my own parenting, I mean, I, I definitely struggle with it. Like, as I say, these are all things that I've had to sort of grapple with, but I, I do try when I remember to just sort of adopt an attitude of curiosity. So it's not like this is what we're going to do now and I'm going to make sure we spend a half an hour after school going through these like math exercises or, you know, games that are going to improve his mind. It's much more like within reason, it's like sort of, well, what are you, where's he going? What's he interested in? Where's he wandering off to do? Like, and I think kids learn that way. In a way, they just you just have to let them learn rather than right. get them to learn. And it's a subtle thing because you sort of do have to be the boss. I think with small children, that's what they need for security, right? To feel that someone's in charge. You, you're not really going to let them just like wander across the freeway or something. <laughs> but, um, but on the other hand, you're right. sort of you're sort of being guided by them when it comes to their interests, and that I think is a good way of doing that. And and then of course you find that you're learning a totally different way of being in the in time as well because because there you were like half an hour ago with your endless to-do lists like powering through powering through and uh actually like he's found a leaf in the backyard and it's just the most fascinating thing ever and it's like oh actually it is kind of the most fascinating thing ever that is that is honestly like the greatest stage of childhood when they can just find fascination in everything you bring up how children are uh one of the only places that you can like regularly find this idea of deep time where you're fully immersed in something and like you you lose track of time itself and you're just kind of passing through. I was wondering if you had ever heard of uh, the idea of Olika. It's a very obscure word. <laughs> no, I don't think I have. So, more. <laughs> so Olika is this concept. It's about how few of the days of your life you can actually remember or pay attention to. So uh, I've been alive 
roughly uh, 1900 weeks or so. Uh, and I can't tell you anything about at least half of those. I couldn't tell you anything about a quarter of them. And so Oliga is this concept where it's like, like that's all of those missing days. It's just, it's something that I came across when I was like researching time from doing your book. And I just wanted to know if it had ever, if it had ever come across you. No, but it sounds very much in keeping with this whole way of thinking. So I'm, I'm glad to be, uh, uh, acquainted with it but no it's not, not not the word i mean right the way things pass us by is really terrifying when you when you think about it <laughs> it is it is you only get four thousand weeks and then you only get to remember a small percentage of them yeah. it, it's really crazy so i'm an urban planning student and one of the things you bring up in your book is how society is kind of desynchronized with the way that we all spend our time you know, pe some people achieve like temporal independence, I think, as you put it, and they have complete control over the way that they're spending their time. But that doesn't really matter if the people in their lives don't have that same level of independence because, you know, you want to go out with your friend at some point. You can't do that because they're not free when you're free. Right. Uh, <laughs> which is something I recently learned becoming a YouTuber. I had never really thought about it until you put it clearly in the book the way that you did having to be a person who thinks about where people are mm -hmm. in a city at any given moment so uh, i just i just wanted to say congratulations on being more effective than the uh, <laughs> urban planning textbook <laughs> um, thank you um no yeah i think it's i don't know if you want to say more about that topic but it's like yeah i think um it's so interesting and sort of alarming how it's like at every level of the ladder, right? It's like if you are somebody who works in like a big box warehouse mail order fulfillment center and you're sort of called in on randomly changing shifts that are calculated by a, an algorithm about how the volume of sales and you have no control over your life, that is a terrible way to live because you can never synchronize your schedule with other people for social reasons or for, right. you know, to be a member, member of a local society or organization of some kind. But also, if you're a kind of relatively privileged, freelancey, writery, somebody like someone like me, like I'm, I've obviously got a, I'm obviously more fortunate than, than somebody in that position that I just described. But like, or, you know, you're a self-employed architect or a web developer or whatever. Like all of us are totally desynchronized from each other as well because yeah. we just, we create these kind of timetables and schedules that work for us. And then, you know, if we're doing well with work, we end up working every hour of the day. And, you know, uh, so, so we're all ending up as a society more, the, the more and the less privileged alike um, with none of these kind of traditional rhythms that you might have had in the past, where it was like you know everyone was a everyone was off work on a Sunday and the shops were closed and probably people went to church and you know yep. maybe people went for walks in the park and it was all sort of part of the same part of the same thing and it's like you know we've 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 lost something. It's not entirely lost. There are cultures and you know I think even sort of subcultures within the United States, within the United Kingdom, where these rhythms remain. But it's something to remember because like 
we all champion this idea of having total control over our own schedules. But actually, you end up in just as bad a situation for when it comes to synchronizing yourself with others in that situation as with as if you were working on shifts where you had no no say in the matter at all. And it's really it's really such an interesting thing. You can see that uh, that kind of atomization of like society on so many different levels because of like that like that continuing fragment. One of the things that I found that was like in your book that was analogous to city planning is you go on about how doing things faster leads to having more things to do. You answer more emails quicker, you're going to be rewarded with more emails. Right. Uh, the same with work. Um, and it made me think of how when people got a faster way to commute, when like cars became uh, a commonplace item, cities went from places that were very dense in like America and they became very suburbanized and disconnected from each other. And it kind of, it follows pretty much the same process that you were talking about with that air of, if you do more, you will have more to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's just, it's interesting how many different places that that can be applied. Well, you know where I thought you were going to go, and I don't know how much this comes into urban planning as opposed to some other disciplines, but like... The thing where um, they add a lane to a freeway to try to relieve congestion, and it makes the it makes the that route more attractive to motorists, so more cars come, and so the congestion returns to what it was induced before, demand. right? Because, right, induced demand, right, right, yeah. exactly. That is, these are, yeah, I mean, something that's what's happening when you get really good at answering your email and you just get more email. It's, it's the same basic dynamic, right? If all yeah. we're pursuing is efficiency here, with no deeper values guiding that efficiency you just you end up in a bad place it's it's really so interesting how like like you can you can apply that same concept to like so many different things as that feedback loop exists pretty much everywhere i know that in writing a book you have to send it to like multiple copy editors editors and different people and yeah. i was wondering if there's any idea or paragraph that you really wanted to talk about that maybe got cut out that maybe you'd like to bring up now? Huh, that's a great question. I wonder <laughs> if I can come up with a good answer to it. I mean, it wasn't so much that I got told I had to take things out. I was very lucky. My editor, my main primary editor at FSG in the US, sort of spotted a problem with the original closing third quarter of the book that was kind of huge. And if he hadn't, I mean, it's difficult to explain and it wouldn't sound very huge if I tried to explain it, but, but it, he really helped me keep, uh, like, pursue my arguments where they needed to go instead of sort of holding back. I guess I kind of sort of flinched at the last moment or something in the in the implications of what I was arguing. And he was like, "No, no, don't flinch. Pursue it to its logical conclusion." There was a whole thing I was hoping to write about and never really did in this book about the, the limitation, the sort of physical, the sort of limitations of the body and of energy and stamina and the fact that. You know, we can only work for so many hours in a day just from a sort of physiological point of view. There's a whole interesting uh, literature on how you look at like all these great artists and authors and composers and mathematicians and everyone through history. And you find that the, the amount of time they actually spent on their sort of deeply focused work in the course of a day was like three or four hours. Yep. It was always just like three or four hours. And it's true that many of them had, you know, multiple servants to keep to do all the other stuff. Uh, yeah. These days, 
we have to do all that other stuff ourselves in the in the other time, of course. But but like all the same, it's a really useful thing to remember. I think that like the hard work, like writing passages of a book or maybe scripting videos. I'm just picking a sort of thing that I assume is part of a YouTube creative. Yeah, definitely you know, love things scripting. like that. Don't don't imagine that you can do that. Like for for eight hours in the day yeah. right i mean it's like it's just and actually it'll be much more effective if you don't attempt to if you can come back again and again day after day to that two or three hours three or four hours it's actually much more productive to bring yourself to stop after three or four hours so that's something i've i did have a whole passage on i've written about it elsewhere but didn't make it into the book um and i really tried to implement that in my own life like like even when you're on a roll it's a good idea to stop that stuff after a few hours and come back to it the next day and the next day and the next day, instead of doing it for like a whole binge session, which then leaves you sort of exhausted and probably takes three days again until you do that much yeah. work. And, and it also sort of builds the, the work in your mind into this really intimidating, like this gargantuan project. And actually it's much better to be able to think about things like writing creative work as a sort of modest project because then it's like no big deal to keep coming back to it instead of this terrifying like oh my goodness it's my art um you know that's that's that'll just that's a recipe for not for procrastination i think that's so true it's a uh, frequency always trumps duration yes uh, i believe you you wrote about this in your uh column the imperfectionist a few weeks ago uh didn't you about how most artists only work that three to four hours uh, it's actually, it's really interesting when you're saying like about the literature, uh, there's this thing in the brain called an altridian rhythm. Uh, it's a lot like the circadian rhythm that like keeps you right. from like, yeah, cycles through when you're awake or when you're asleep, but, uh, basically it controls how long your brain can focus on one given activity for, and then it kind of like cycles on and off, but it only cycles so many times throughout the day. So typically it's like 90 minutes to two hours and then you need like a sh break and then it'll do it again. Right. And then like, as that repeats, it gets much, much weaker. It's like a diminishing uh, right. return curve. And it's just like the science lines up exactly with what you said. And I just found that very interesting. Oh, um, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, as we, so as we were coming up on an hour, so my last question is, Oliver, where can the people find you? <laughs> well, I have this website, oliverberkman.com. That's Oliver, B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. And that's where you can sign up for the Imperfectionist uh, newsletter as well. And then um, I'm on Twitter at Oliver Berkman. And the book, 4,000 Weeks, is available in all the places you you might expect. And uh, ebook and audiobook as well. All of those things will be linked in the description on the podcast below. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, it's in the YouTube description. Uh, Oliver, thank you so much for being here and thank you for being my first podcast guest. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>